2 Timothy chapter 2. This is part 2 from the last message. It's a different title, but it's the continuation of the text. The last message was, He remains faithful, which was a phrase out of verse 13. And this is, God's foundation stands sure, which is a phrase out of verse 19. And really, verse 13 to 19, I'm, I'm wanting to bring those together and tie them together. That was my original intent. I just didn't get it done last time. Let's start reading in verse 7. Paul writing a letter, a second letter to young Timothy, exhorting him, advising him, counseling him, and training him on um, you know, the gospel ministry. Verse 7. 2 Timothy 2. Consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. For their word will eat as does a canker, of whom is Hymaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his, and let every one uh, that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. As I said last message, we dealt with, um, it was verses 7 through 13. And really, originally I was wanting to tie verse 13 with 19. I barely got to 13. And I rushed to get to 13 and didn't cover 13 as much as I wanted to. So the initial part of this message will kind of go back over what verse 13 was saying. So we can tie it into verse 19, and it shouldn't be a problem with this being, um, you know, finishing this message to, to get this goal accomplished. In verse 13, and I had mentioned, you know, when you do a second, when you don't get finished and you do a second part, I almost want to re-preach the same message, you know, so you can know what, how it ties in. Uh, that's just me. But in verse 13, I had mentioned that this is kind of a, an oftentimes misinterpreted verse, what it's saying. And um, the way that it's the way that it's spoken out, it, it is a bit confusing the way that um, it's divided. Verse 13 says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. So having said that, I think it's important to go back to the previous verse, verse 12. And look at the second half of that that says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And we said last time that there's nothing positive about that. There's really no way of getting out of that. There's no way of making that say something else. And when we talk about this so that some people just don't like freak out ahead of time, we're talking about all this in the context of persevering in the gospel. God working in his people to persevere them to continue to believe the gospel. The, that initial work that God started in us gave us God-given faith, gave us the spirit of God. 
he continues to work in us, causing us to stand by his power. And we continue to believe the gospel until the end. And we, we looked at several verses last week. I might grab a couple from that and reread them. We're going to be looking at a lot of text, so uh, some I'll just read, some I'll have you turn to. But that's, that's the context. That's the context of which I'm talking about this, is in the context of God's people persevering in the gospel of grace. So if we deny him, he will also deny us. Uh, it is clear that God's people confess Christ. Romans 10 is very clear on that. They confess him. They, the word confess, remember, means saying the same word about. We agree with what the gospel says. That's why we believe it. The gospel testifies of the actual things that this person actually did to accomplish redemption. So we confess him. We agree. Uh, we say amen. When we see the truths of, of the gospel, we say amen. We agree. You could uh, just as well say if we deny him, he will deny us. He cannot deny himself. So you can take those two verses and put those together and flow like that. And it is uh, congruent that way. It's still, I think it communicates it also clearly that way. So what we concluded in verse 13 by the clear statement there is that if people don't believe, God still remains faithful to himself. He cannot deny himself. So having said that, we know if you take the totality of the scripture and sum it up, those that do not believe are the non-elect. They do not, they cannot, they will not. This is the evidence that they are not elect. Some people, when they read this, I think they read into it that these are some people that believed and then it looks like they're not believing in the end. And they want to like apply that to themselves and they get scared. Isn't God going to be faithful to me if I get weak in the end? So, so I think sometimes that's infused in this text. So what does, what does that mean? What does that, that fear and that objection there mean? I mean, we believe that the scripture teaches apostasy. People do apostatize from the faith. We see that. We'll talk more about that as we go along. So it is, in other words, this verse here, verse 13, is not to be misread as God putting some stamp of approval on unbelief or apostasy. So the King James says, if we believe not, some of the more modern versions, the ESV says, if we are faithless, and the modern King James version says, if we do not believe him. So think about somebody reading this verse in the context of what's been called easy believism. Easy believism is in Armenian churches, works-based churches, churches that teach conditions for salvation, where they have embraced this system developed by Charles Finney back 170 so years ago, where it was brand new on the scene where they call people down front. They play an emotional song, perhaps. They tell emotional stories. They try to coax people psychologically down the aisle to agree to a few questions. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. You know, just kind of simple mechanical things. And then they say, well, repeat this prayer. And then they repeat that prayer. And then the guy says, well, you're saved. So that's easy believism. And most of those people... They didn't hear the gospel previous to that. And they're calling upon the name of some Lord that is not matched from the man's message to the scripture. So it's a bad system from the get-go in the foundational theological doctrinal base as far as the gospel is concerned. But then the mechanics of that system is set up in such a way that it is made to be a conditional system that people would look at what they do to get that salvation, that process of saying a prayer, asking for forgiveness, confessing their sins, and actually the context that I even talk about confess, confessing Christ. And anyway, I, and I was caught in this system. I can speak from you know, my own experience, and some of you may have done the same thing. 
but it's a conditional system. And when they are looking for assurance, they look back at that time and place where they knelt down and they did that thing that the scripture doesn't say to do. And easy believism is usually, well, I got my ticket punched, you know, I got my ticket to heaven and I did my thing, so that's, that's it. I'm eternally secure. And a lot of those people never darken the door of a church or think about anything like that ever again. That's a man-made system. So we can see why they would interpret that verse differently. If we believe not, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So they'd be thinking, well, I did my thing, and then later on I didn't believe, but back then I did my thing. So he's going to remain faithful to me doing my thing. It's not what this is saying. And you can infuse any other false system in there, and people can do that too. We could also see on the other end of the spectrum why someone who would perhaps be a legalist could infuse something into this. And they would say that the sinner's prayer system, they would agree with this, that it's negative and it's wrong, but for a different reason. The legalist... Where it says in the text, if you believe not, they get this whole big package of some type of a conditional, holy standard of living. If you're not performing to a certain standard, then that's you not believing. And so their perseverance is not just in the gospel, but it is in some certain standard of works that keep getting better. You keep getting better and sinning less. And if you don't do that, then you're not a believer. They'll infuse that idea in there. And that's not there. It's just not in the scripture, period. So that is a, another extreme in the opposite direction. So when we talk about perseverance, we ask, well, we're careful to ask perseverance in what? In what? Let's go to Galatians. We'll be coming back to uh, 2 Timothy. Let's go to Galatians. I, I read this uh, it's real quick at the end. It's a good one. We've been here before for a bunch of different reasons. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 20. This is going to talk about perseverance in the gospel. Verse 20. And through him, speaking of Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice where peace comes from, the blood of his cross. It pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself through him, whether it be things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21. And you talking to believers, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Reconciliation has to do with peace. Peace is based on propitiation. It's the satisfaction of God's law and justice, which he talked about in a previous verse. That's how reconciliation takes place. Verse 22, Colossians 1, 22. And in the body, this is how it was done, in the body of his flesh, through death, what does that result in? To present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. And then here's the big if. So works righteousness religion will emphasize this if as if it's the only word in the sentence. It probably should have its own number for a verse they should have skipped down to 24 and started with indeed if should have been its own sentence according to them so they think that they have us when they say well look it's conditional before we go any further now we know this faith is a gift right it's not even an offer it's a gift that god works in you powerfully the same power it took to raise christ from the dead he works in you and it is him that works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure for the rest of your life in this perseverance in the gospel. And even before that and beside that, we know about an effectual, definite, satisfactory atonement. And before that, we know about an unconditional election. There is nothing in the history of salvation that we can point to us and take credit for. Nothing. So this if is not scary. This if makes sense because it points to what is the wisdom of God and is the only thing in our life, in our mind, our new spiritual mind, that makes sense to us, which is the gospel. It says, look, if 
Indeed, you continue in the faith, that's that body of doctrine that comprises the gospel, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. It doesn't say the hope of you doing certain things and getting better at those things progressively until the day you die. It says the hope or the confident expectation of that record of the gospel concerning what God says about his son, which is your only hope. So that is what the believer perseveres in. Why would a believer in their right mind want to move away from that hope? That would be spiritual suicide. That would be something that doesn't match the mind of Christ. To move away from that hope would be somehow an influence of the very spirit of Antichrist. And if a person would move away from that hope, it would be evidence that he never had that hope in the first place. That's how that works. And we have known people, they have come into this church and left this church that have fit that description. So this is protective. This if is protective. The wagons kind of circle and just, why would we leave this? You know, that's what, that's our response. Why would we leave this? This is my life. This is what I'm counting on. It would be, it would be not good to leave this. So the elect will believe and they will believe to the end because he, God, cannot deny himself. Like our text says. So, as we've been studying in the series concerning election, Chosen in Christ series, uh, 37 I think we're up into, all those things that we covered in there should apply here. He cannot deny himself in his sovereign purpose. God has a sovereign purpose. It cannot be stopped. He has the power to carry it out. He will carry it out. It's just as good as already carried out. That's how, that's how strong it is. Nothing can stop him. He has made covenant promises. The father and the son have made a covenant together. He will not deny himself. He will not lie to his son. He has the very power of his effectual calling, which is fruit of the accomplished cross. The effectual call goes out to all those that Christ died for. And he has the power to bring all those people to himself. We are very familiar with John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me in election shall come to me. That's by God-given faith. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He can't cast them out because they are bought and paid for. They're loved. They're chosen. They're bought and paid for. They're effectually called. God will not stop working in them both to do and will of his good pleasure. He will cause them to persevere in the gospel. Nobody can pluck them out of God's hand. And you can just think of all those positive verses where that have to do with security. And the reason this is so important is not just so we can lavish in all this and receive the, the benefits. That's part of it. But the primary thing is because he cannot deny himself. This thing's about him. It's about him primarily. And then we get the benefits that flow from the activity between the father and son. So it's about the glory of God. It's about the victory of Christ's death. Now you can just look, you know, sit back and look abstractly at, yeah, this victory. I see it. It's, it's great. But that just doesn't stop there. That has to bust out and stuff comes from it fruit comes out of that and here we are you know we're partaking all the spiritual blessings that come out of that what that produces and that is perseverance in the gospel but constantly seeing christ embracing him learning about him loving him we know we've talked a lot about the cause and effect god's the first cause and he affects us by what happened with Christ. So God's people will persevere in the faith of the gospel. 
Last week we, uh, let's not turn there, but let's kind of just, I can talk about it and go over it. We went to Hebrews 10. Verse 25 is the one, you know, the church attendance verse, forsake not the assembly. And verse 26 is one that the works righteousness people will go to because it sounds like a conditional verse. It says, if you have sinned willfully after you have received the knowledge of the truth, therefore there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And it goes on and talks about this negative like condemnation. That's what's this a threat of that's what's going to happen if you sin willfully after if you receive the knowledge of the truth. And we know that false religion will look at that verse and they'll say, if you sin any type of sin willfully, this is what's going to happen. And they act like they don't commit willful sins, which is ridiculous because all sin is willful. In Hebrews, we know that the whole context of the book is a warning to not go back into the Old Covenant, which would be the sin of unbelief. That willful sin, verse 26, is the sin of unbelief or going back. We can say apostasy, leaving the faith that these people in Hebrews, the, the Christians, were claiming to believe. You could take that whole idea and move it over to Galatians. You know, Paul was warning those people. He said, you guys are going back to the weak and beggarly elements. You know, you can't be justified under the law. And it's the same thing. They, Some of them were in the process of going back. Some were thinking about it. Some did. And Paul wrote that letter. It's like, here's the arguments. Get off the fence. What are you doing? I'm scared of some of you. I don't, you know, I'm hesitant to call you brothers. In other words, he was like, because if you believe this, gospel that adds circumcision dietary laws and whatever else certain special days if you're doing that for righteousness he said that's a false gospel so here's your warning here's your here's your information concerning what you need to repent of if if that's what you're thinking about so it was a warning that would be the willful sin that's the same thing it's the same willful sin it's going back to an inferior substandard system that doesn't take away sin anyway. We know in 1 John also, it talks about the commands of God, doing the commands of God, doing righteousness. And what is the command of God? It says in there to believe the gospel and to love your brothers and sisters. That's the command of God. And people want to superimpose the Decalogue there. Well, they're doing what the ones in Hebrews and Galatians were doing. So a lot of times these things, these texts are turned on their head and people interpret these things the very opposite of what they really mean. Matthew 7, right? But Lord, Lord, haven't I done this and that? Preached, prophesied your name, cast out demons and all that. And Christ said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. And it goes on, it says to he that, uh, uh, it talks about doing the will of God. And people take, here it is again, they're carrying this decalogue and they bring it over. There's the will of God. Do that. The will of God, it says, is to believe on the Son. And God gives you the faith to do that. If doing the will of God is keeping the law, there won't be one person in heaven. Not one. Everybody will be in hell. So it's, it's not that. So if you believe not could be people just saying you know I'm just tired of this I'm just tired of getting up on Sunday and going to church I'm tired of um, pretending I believe this stuff and they just like just quit or somebody gets enticed by a works righteousness gospel and they say hey I, that seems more that's the high road right there I think I can get some brownie points. I mean, I, I can glory in that. So they take that works righteousness, personal righteousness, personal holiness. It's dead works is all it is. They take that road by deception. And they, they're religious. They're stirring around doing all kinds of things. But we know what that means. They believe not. So that's another way that you can believe not. There's different 
all kind of different ways you can believe not. All it means is you don't believe the gospel. Anything else but believing the gospel. So perseverance in the gospel is what that's stressing there in verse 13. Look at verse 14, 2 Timothy 2, 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. That's, that's what those words do. You know, there, there's all kind of warnings. A lot of stuff Paul writes that sounds a lot like this right here. A lot of warnings do not get involved with goofy, time-consuming, hateful, distracting conversations with people that don't even know what they're talking about. It talked about, um, <laughs> Paul talked about these people that um, thought they knew the law, said in a couple different places. In Galatians, it says these people are trying to get you to keep the law, saying so glory in your flesh. They don't even keep the law themselves. And then in another spot, it talks about these people that are teachers of the law who are ignorant of the law, but yet they're teachers of the law. I see that a lot because they don't hear what the law says. But yet they're teachers of the law. There are also other things. I think there's another verse we're going to look at that has to do with distracting speech. We'll get down to that here in a little while. So you can see in the context of like, don't get involved in striving about these things with no profit, but instead study to show yourself approved under God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, if you're rightly dividing the word of truth, you know these other things are distracting and they're a waste of time. And they're just, they're vain. So rightly dividing the word of truth. As God's people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and as teachers and preachers grow, they learn the overall context of the Bible. Then they understand the context maybe of each book. And then they understand the, the immediate context of what's being talked about in the chapters. And they can relate those to other things in that chapter, in that book, in other books in the Bible, and it, and it just keeps going out. And you start to get a good grip and feel for the overall message of the Bible. Then you start seeing what is the primary focus of the scripture? What does it say that we are to talk about most? How do we deal with, how do we handle this word? And what is our, what would be a balance, for lack of a better phrase? I mean, that can be deceptive. A balance, a lot of times, we've talked about this before, is not necessarily 50-50 anything. Because usually a balance is 50-50, but not in the scripture necessarily, depending on what's talked about. So context, you should know about context, distinctions maybe between the law and gospel, what to emphasize, what to distinguish from one thing to another. The fact that whatever you deal with, you should be able to see in the context that it is Everything is pointing to Christ and how that subjects that might seem secondary can be related to the gospel. For example, forgiveness, marriage, all these different things run through the gospel. Why should I or how should I forgive you or how should you forgive me? We should know that God forgave me for Christ's sake Therefore, that's what I do for you. I don't make you jump through hoops to earn it, like false religion tries to earn salvation. I don't need to model false view of salvation and then superimpose it on somebody to you stand over them and you become God and you say, you know, you're going to earn your forgiveness. That's, that's a false religious idea. God doesn't even do that to us. He has free grace. So we should realize that we're sinners. We sin against people. We expect to be forgiven when we sin against people. A lot of times people withhold their forgiveness from other people, but yet they are transgressing against other people. It's hypocrisy. 
so there's all these things. And, and then, you know, the, the more you grow, the more that you can rightly divide the word of truth. And then as you practice encountering people, you're able to help them more efficiently because you've grown and you know what to say. You know what to say because you know what they need to hear. And it's especially important in the church. You know, it's it's great all throughout your the week that you live. But when you have certain things come into the church that are damaging to the church, there's some serious problems. So it's important overall. Here's another. Notice how that is sandwiched between the warning of verse 14 to not talk about stupid things. And look at this verse 16 here. Sort of the same idea. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Verse 14 was, strive not about words to no profit. Okay? Don't be, here, here's a balance. Don't be so tolerant that you just let false doctrine come in the church. But then again, don't be so aggressive that every single word that comes out of everybody's mouth, you're ready to rip their head off and you're nitpicky. Nobody wants to be around a person like that. A person like in the church that you're walking on eggshells. That's why at the end of this chapter, it talks about being uh, patient, apt to teach, compassionate, and so on. Peradventure, God would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So all this stuff flows in its context. Vain babblings, profane and vain babblings. I mean, there's enough of that to go around. It's, it's, it's crazy. So again, there's several warnings in all the New Testament letters that sound just like this. Don't get tangled up in stupid arguments, vain arguments. It's just babbling. It would be interesting to just gather all those verses up that talk like that. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of them. So not just personal conversations, but I mean, you, you all know today how popular it's the new printing press of today. Social media, right? There is a lot of vain babblings on social media. Plenty. And it's interesting what is so popular on those platforms. I mean, you, I, could, I could take, say, a half hour and tailor something that is something that's pure gospel and it's glorifying to Christ and put it up. And I'm not putting stuff up to see how many hit, uh, likes I can get. But usually it won't get that many. But then I'll be going through the, the news feed on Facebook and I'll see something like... Uh, who believes women should wear head coverings? There's like 600 comments. Who cares? <laughs> We're getting tangled up in something that... Look, here's the gospel. Let's talk, talk about this. But no, let's talk about something provocative and, and uh, controversial. Let's talk about some far-out view of eschatology. You know, Do you have musical instruments in the church? Or, you mean you play a guitar in church? You know? You're going to hell. Women are wearing makeup. Here's one. Here's an example. Last week, some guy who's in a Southern Baptist church, he said um, that he saw that it was um, like going in the direction of apostasy because these guys that preach in the Southern Baptist churches are not wearing suits and ties anymore. It's like the end, you know? <laughs> And this guy was dogmatic. I mean, he had numbered points. Why? And I said, I think your concern should be about, in the Southern Baptist Convention, should be doctrine, because it's pretty weak, for the most part. And then there were people in there that were super conservative, and they said, you know, stick with the subject of the post. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to help you people out. You need to direct your attention to what glorifies God. So those are examples Later on in this chapter, in verse 23, it says, it's another, another slam. It says, but avoid foolish and unlearned questions, knowing that they give birth to strife. Foolish and unlearned questions. Now, remember what we've said this here before. It's kind of funny, but it's sad. And this is not the exhaustive list. 
But I've noticed, in my experience historically, over the past 30 years, trying to deal with people about spiritual things, they want to talk about aliens, dinosaurs, babies, and a heathen on the desert island. Those are the top four, which has nothing to do with them. We're talking about you. It's usually an adult. What about aliens? What about dinosaurs? What about babies? What about the heathen on the desert island? Is that you? No? <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Stay focused. There's other things that are distracting. But that's odd to me. That's very odd to me. So we should learn to redirect. And if there's no cooperation, you know, we need to learn to choose our battles wisely. Don't waste effort. Don't waste time on fools. Scripture says that. Don't answer a fool in his folly. Because most of these people, they hate the knowledge of God. So in evangelism, I think we mentioned this last time. In evangelism, as you're dealing with people, and especially if something somebody you know, known for a long time, you care about, maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker, or somebody you admire, and you're wanting to give them the gospel, and they're just not having it. So here's the question. How long... Do you bombard them with it? And we think gave two examples and uh, textual examples. One says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And then another scriptural phrase is, don't cast your pearls before swine, because after a while you see this person is not hearing me. There are other things involved in, in our um, evangelistic section of the um, Chosen in Christ series. We will get into some of those things like, Sometimes one person plants, another person waters. You not you might not be, you know, it might be the opposite of what's going on. Don't think you got to be the sole planter and waterer, and then you're trying to be the Holy Spirit. That's just, you just do your thing, and if they receive it, they receive it. If they don't, I don't know how many times. Some um, lady wrote me about a month ago saying that her, She's just being persecuted constantly. Her family hates her. Her family is Catholic. But come to find out, she is just like bombarding them every day. And it's been a long time. And I said, there comes a point where you need to just stop and say, look, I know we got heated. If you ever want to talk about this in the future, please talk to me. But why make your relatives like not want you to be around if you've given them the clear gospel a few times it, it only takes once <laughs> you don't have to just make them miserable every time you see them so that's the idea in evangelism in the in the defense of the faith let's say uh, you're dealing maybe somebody in the church or maybe other churches that you're somehow communicating about doctrine the scripture says, after the first and second admonition, reject a heretic. You don't have to keep picking that scab. That's part of these, these practical warnings here. Don't waste your time. They're not hearing you. I'm preaching myself here because I'm, I'm bad for readdressing. So especially, especially these law people, as I gave an example of, they are the, they're the worst because they have in their minds... A conditional salvation mentality and they won't stop and they think they're doing God a service so these are the ones that you see well looks like they're not trusting in Christ alone they won't be quiet about what they're doing and if you talk about Christ alone every time you do they just say but 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 however however don't you gotta don't you gotta not for a righteousness. Nope. So they have this weird view of um, doing things for a final salvation. As if God's justification by an imputed righteousness is not enough. But that's, that's what it boils down to. Look at verse 17. And their word will eat as does a canker. One of the more modern verses says gangrene. Of whom Hymenaeus and Philetus, these are these are two people. And notice Paul, he calls out names here. He didn't say these two guys, you, I think you might know who I'm talking about. 
Now, he calls their names. You know why? They're seeking to harm God's church, his sheep. It's pretty important that these people be called out so that the sheep can know who they are, so that they can avoid him, avoid them. Verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is already past. And, and so what happened there? What is the result? And over through the faith of some, this is apostasy. They left the faith. They believe not. Verse 13. Now, was this the purpose of God? Sure. God is in control of all that stuff. He's in control of uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He's running that. He's in control providentially of false prophets. Jude uh, 4, I think it is, talks about these false prophets that were foreordained to a specific condemnation. God runs it all. He, in his providence, he said, there must needs be heresies among you so that those that are approved may be made manifest or may be made known. So there's those contrasts, those distinctions. That's why my most recent article I, I wrote uh, yesterday or the day before about how that it's God's glory that there are distinctions between him and idols. God compares himself to idols. He says, look at these idols. They can't do anything. you got to pick them up, stand them up, sit them up. They can't answer you, but I'm God and there's none else. Declaring the end from the beginning, the things that have not yet taken place, my counsel shall stand. But look at these stupid idols, he says. He loves it. <laughs> he says, why are you worshiping these things? You pray to a God that can't save. Come let us reason together. And he just talks about himself. He likes himself. And I like that about him. But some people say, he's an egomaniac. You don't worship him. If you worshiped him, you wouldn't think of him that way. You couldn't get enough of it. So there's some ideas there. So they, they were, their faith was overthrown, which means really they really didn't have true faith to begin with. They were deceived all along the way. I'm going to read a few verses to you. Here's one in 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's a prophecy. It's the truth of the scripture that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. I mean, we're seeing it. Now look at verse 19 in our text. Nevertheless, after, after saying all that he said there, nevertheless, because there were some negative things said. I have a habit of saying, anyway, it's a bunch of drama and stuff goes on at work, and I'll say it kind of loud. Uh, anyway, like, forget about the, all that junk, and then talk about this. And that's kind of what's going on. Nevertheless, and he's coming to a strong point here, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. Now, how is this going to be sure and certain? It sounds like pretty bold language here. I mean, Paul is writing to Timothy under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit of God. And it's bold language. And it's, it's certain language. But have you ever like backed up and looked at it and said, well, how, what's, what's backing that? How, how's this going to be sure and certain? I mean, your mind should be flooded with some things if you've learned some things about the gospel over the years. And we know that, that God's salvation is it's a Trinitarian salvation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are involved. And we need to be reminded that in God's wisdom, Christ, he chose to set Christ forth in preeminence. We've got it on the wall back there that in all things he might have preeminence. We, we have given specific examples. He's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent. He's going to be the judge in the end. All these, he's preeminent in salvation overall. The government of salvation is on his shoulder. He took care of it by himself without any help. 
and it was sufficient. So the Trinitarian salvation, we can look at the Father. We know election was done by the Father before time, but it couldn't have happened unless these people were chosen in Christ. It all hinges on Christ. Even though the Father's doing it, the focus is on, I'm electing a people in Christ, in, by, and through, conditioned on him, because of him, for his sake, Christ. So he has the preeminence in election. Of course, the son, it's obvious. You don't even have to explain that. He went to the cross by himself. He took on sin. He put that sin away by the sacrifice of himself. He satisfied the demands of law and justice. He accomplished eternal redemption for all those that he represented by his effectual death. So the son, of course, is preeminent in the cross. The spirit, the spirit comes in power through the means of the gospel and what does the Spirit do? Let's speak in tongues. No. No, the Spirit testifies of Christ. The truth concerning what he accomplished at the cross. So even the work of the Spirit, the spotlight is on Christ. That's the Spirit's job. I think he can get that done too. And he likes it. He's not jealous, right? There's no conflict in the Trinity. There's unity in purpose. So what I'm getting at is God's sheep, the elect, they have a representative. Christ was appointed their representative. This is how salvation can be sure and certain for God's people. The very first verse of this book of 2 Timothy says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, notice, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Just reminds us of the whole foundation. This promise is, it, it concerns that salvation is conditioned on Christ alone. So in order that we get the gospel right, something has to precede that. Christ has to perform it right. He has to go with the plan. He has to know what the plan is. He knows that he has to execute that plan according to the will of God. Look at Luke 14. I'm going to give an example here. Now, the context is talking about disciples or us counting the cost. But I'm telling you that we can't do anything until he does his thing. Did Christ count the cost? That is a, that's a question. Did he count the cost? Did he know, did he just like lackadaisical, like happenstance, like stumble through this stuff? And he got arrested and got killed. And God says, I'll turn this into something good. Like uh, in Genesis 49, they meant it for uh, evil, I meant it for good. This was the eternal plan of God. This is why the world was created. So Christ could come and glorify his father on the cross. We know this. Look at verse uh, 28 of Luke 14. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he may have enough to finish it. Lest perhaps after he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All those seeing begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a, this thing and is not able to finish it. Mockery took place. And you know, and rightly so. Probably some competitive business people or builders, you know. You know how people are in a community, like, <laughs> look... <laughs> You know, they make fun of people and they talk about people. Well, look, this is way more important than building a physical structure. This is talking about spiritual things. And Christ's counting the cost is way more important than us counting the cost. Because if he didn't count the cost and get it done, it's not even going to happen for us. Right? There has to be a foundation. Christ has to count the cost. So eternally, in the decree of God, the purpose of God, we know. In the covenant, what was planned and purposed, what needed to be done, who needed to be chosen, the qualifications that were needed. And we see little bleeps and blurbs where maybe they're at the end there. Some people might be thinking, uh, I don't know if he did count the cost. He says, Father, if it be possible, then let this cup pass before me. Do you think he was like saying, I, I'm going to cancel this? I think that was said so that we can see. It's not possible. This cup has to come. I'm going to drink it. That's why I came. Right? So this had to be done. And, you know, I can read all kinds of things into this that are, that are 
comparatively spiritual, of a false Christ that failed. We see him all the time and we hear him on the airwaves and on the internet of a Christ that just couldn't get the job done. And you've got to help him out. It's pitiful. That's what I see in here. So we can't count the cost until we see that he did it right. And when we're counting the cost, all we're doing is knowing ahead of time. When we believe this gospel, the same one he taught and, and lived out, performed, earned for us, he's hated, we're going to be hated. It's just a fact. Can you count that cost? Or are you going to be surprised? Right? He counted the cost. And after his perfect sacrifice, he said it's finished. It was paid for completely. Look at uh, John 10. John 10. Now, what we're supporting here is the foundation of God stands sure concerning the seal that he knows those that are his. Well, let's see what the shepherd says here. Christ the shepherd. John 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he who is a hireling is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he runs away. And the wolf catches them and scatters them. A hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Look at this. I know those that are mine. Right? That's what our text says. The foundation of God stands sure. He knows those that are his. It's all over the place. And I am known by those who are mine. There's the cause and effect. Works every time. Even as the Father knows me, I also know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Skip down to verse 25. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe the works that I do I do in my father's name they bear witness of me but you did not believe why because you are not of my sheep as I said to you my sheep hear my voice and I know them there it is he said it again and they follow me there's the effect and I give to them eternal life and they shall never never perish and no one shall be able to pluck them out of my father's hand. My father who gave them me is greater than all. And no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So we see when we read that, we see it lends to this idea and harmonizes with our text that the foundation of God stands sure. You read this language here and Christ, he, is he lying here? Is he like? embellishing what's going to happen? No, this is sure in certain language. Let's go to another, Romans 8. It's in the context of uh, the five golden chains of grace. We know the links of grace. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And uh, that's all stated there. And then here's what is said next after that. What shall we say? Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, I want us to, as we see this language here, I want us to think of surety, security, a foundation standing sure, sure and certain. If God be for us, who can be against us? Nobody. He that spared not his own son. Look, this is the biggest deal he's saying. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, the believers. How shall he not with him freely give us all things, all those spiritual blessings? Perseverance in the gospel is one of them. It's one of them. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody. Why? Because it's God that justifies. The foundation of God stands sure. He knows those that are his. He's the one. Christ died for them. The, the father justified them. Declared them righteous based on the work of Christ. He knows those that are his. It's the seal of the king of kings. 
Just like the the king used to with his ring, you know, stamp the, the letter shut with the wax. You know what I'm saying? That's a seal. It's, it's, not, it's no just common seal. It's God's seal. The God that cannot lie. Who is he that condemneth? Verse 34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen, who is at the right hand of God. Here's a bonus. Who also makes intercession for us. Right now, he's making intercession. The one who is ascended and exalted on high, higher, as it says in Ephesians toward the latter part of chapter 1, higher than anywhere that anybody will ever be in this world or any world to come. He's right there reigning at the right hand, holding the scepter of righteousness, the king of righteousness. Nobody can stop him. As long as nobody can get up there to him, the work's already been done anyway. There's safety and security there. Let me read one. You don't have to turn to me. Read this real quick. It's out of Romans 4. For the promise that uh, he should be heir of the world, talking about Abraham, was uh, not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Notice this. For if they which are of the law be heir, faith is made void, and the promise is made of none effect. Now, we talked about God, this foundation be, being sure and certain, and that um, God cannot deny himself. And this verse kind of says, really, this is the way that this has to work. If it doesn't work this way, all will be lost. The, the house will crumble. Because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace, notice this, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. It's got to be by faith or of faith by grace to match the promise. When you bring in law, the promise is not a promise. It becomes a condition which destroys the promise, directs you away from Christ, So anyway, I had a few other things here. Um, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have had continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. 1 John 2.19. That's just an apostasy verse. God knows those that will leave. God knows his own and he causes them to stay. His foundation stands sure. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Any type of iniquity. Outward, immoral, outward immorality. Um, immorality and iniquity of your mind when you think of immoral things. And then on the other side, the iniquity of a works righteousness. Depart from that. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust for the day of judgment to be punished. He's got it under control. So here's a couple of final questions. In reference to he knows those that are his. We know that he loves who he chastens. Right? Whoever he loves, he will chasten them. That's part of the cause of the continuation in the faith. He loves them. He'll provide for them and ensure that they'll partake of all spiritual blessings in Christ. We know that Christ, you know, salvation is of the Lord. So here's some questions. Do people still sin? Yes. Every day. Do people sometimes have weak faith? Yes. A lot of times. Do people waver in their faith? Is it like a roller coaster sometimes? Yes. Sometimes are people temporarily bewitched? Yeah. There was some in Galatia there. Paul was writing a warning letter. You look at those people and you think, wow, they're messed up. But some of those were believers and they came back out of that mess. 
Same in the Hebrews. Same in all the churches, really. They get, they get tangled up in things. But Christ, who is the shepherd, will not finally let them end up and perish in unbelief. He's a good shepherd. What does it say? He shall lose none, but raise them up in the last day. What, what did the writer of Hebrews say in that, in that, at the end of, of uh, chapter 10? Talked about that willful sin. He said, but we are not of those that draw back unto perdition, but we are those that believe unto the saving of the soul. Persevere in the gospel. All to the credit of God. Not us. If God would, uh, you know, stop his work in us, we would immediately plunge and fall and fail. We would be done. All right, any questions, comments? When you were saying that people become the witch, explain the witch. Yeah, uh, in Galatians, there were some people there that came in that church. There was, I think it's like three or four churches spread out over that area, and um, primarily Gentiles. And so these Judaizers, they, they came in slowly by stealth. And I mean, they really took their time and were slick. And they brought in these things very slow. And they didn't outright say, no, Christ's death, you don't need Christ's death. They said, that's great, but we need to add these other traditional things. And they probably appealed to the, you know, Abraham and, and just all the tradition of, of Israel, you know. And um, so they, they brought these things in and they were adding them to the work of Christ. And, and again, probably a lot of um, immature, maybe young believers perhaps and these other experts in the law come in like slick you know playing it's a it was a conspiracy and bringing these things in because you had this clash in the in the tra uh, transition from old covenant to new covenant and there was all this stuff going on and there was this break sacrifices stopped and you know these preachers were saying you don't need that system anymore so you had all these people uh, culturally that were like really mad about it so there was this competition going on so I imagine there were the, there was a lot of people getting together and say you know we, we need to like slip in here and we, this is getting out of control we need to like slow this down and, and they so they infuse their Judaism into it slowly so some of the people it looks like in the, in the book of Galatians that were in the process of going into that or falling for that uh, as far as the time frame, I'm not sure, but Paul sent that warning out, and um, it was like a, a like a get off the fence letter. You know, it's like I'm going to present all the arguments to you, and it's like you decide. You know, you're going to believe this gospel that I originally taught you when I originally visited these churches, or are you going to believe this stuff that these other guys have brought in and added to the gospel? So he lays out all these arguments, like six chapters of arguments. And so, in other words, temporarily, they were like paused or they had doubts. I think that word bewitched is actually used in the King James in, in Galatia, in, in the book of Galatians there. So, I don't think anybody could just like stand back and look all across the board and say, well, all these people were lost or all these people were saved. It's like um, we just know that some were starting to fall for that and it looked like they were going in that direction and you know we don't know if Paul wrote that letter it would be kind of nice to know you know um, some kind of church status report that they said well you know 59 people went on to be with the Judaizers and 85 rejected the Judaizers lies I mean we, we just don't know I know in Acts 15 there was a there was a council that took place where the subject was brought up and um, it was talked about, and um, pretty much the Judaizers, of course, didn't get their way because it wasn't Christianity. It was Old Covenant law that was brought in. So that example shows the importance of, in the modern-day church, heresies that could creep in. That's why those that are mature in the faith have to recognize those heresies and like nip them in the bud, you know, like when somebody's talking weird about something, you kind of like say, uh, what do you mean by that? You know, uh, especially if it's somebody from the outside coming in, that's starting maybe to get aggressive and 
looks like maybe they're trying to take over or something. You know, maybe try to draw warnings in the New Testament where Paul and others said that people come in and try to draw people into themselves, disciples to themselves. So that as far as believers are concerned, ones that were true believers and elect, the, the bewitchment was temporary and it was corrected by the word of God through the apostle. But there's like th at least three, maybe four spots in Galatians where Paul said, like one of the phrases was, like, I'm afraid of you. And it, that was related to, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if you're converted or not. You know, that's kind of the idea there. He's like hesitant to, he calls them brothers at a certain point, but then it's like, I mean, what are you guys going to do? You know, make up your mind what you're going to do. Because if you go this way, I can't call you brother. But if you go the way of grace, I'll receive you as a brother. I mean, Paul was judging by the gospel. And that's what we're supposed to do. We judge by the same gospel we believe. We don't judge by the law. If we judge by the law, we condemn ourselves because we're lawbreakers. All right, we'll be dismissed. <laughs>